0: Watch out for those
1: weirdos. (laughs) We are the weirdos, mister.
0: Welcome to another episode of the Windsor Film Club, the underground club of movie podcasts focusing on the underseen, underappreciated, or downright weird films. My name is Reina Cervantes, and I am here co-hosting with... Steph Koza. Hello! Hola, hola. Joining us, as always, is Madison Fairchild.
2: Hi, everyone.
0: Hello, hello. Um, How are you feeling, especially after Star Wars Celebration?
2: I'm sure tired, but I'm excited to record this. Yeah,
0: hell yeah. Let's jump into this, because I have a feeling we're, we're all pretty excited. Uh, this is the second week of our Pride series for the month of June, Woo! Cronenberg Month, where we're covering the lesser-known films of body horror maestro David Cronenberg through a possible queer lens, maybe, maybe not. We'll figure it out as we Go along like we always do. This week, we'll be covering Dead Ringers from 1988, one of the more misdirecting works of Cronenberg himself. Uh, Madison, do you care to introduce who's joining us this week?
2: Of course, I would. Elle Schneider is a director and cinematographer from New York City who's directed videos for Gangsta Grass, Mock Sun, Sad 13, Isla June, and Speedy Ortiz, an avid cinephile with a passion for genre films who cites Roger Kornman, David Lean, Fritz Lang, and James Cameron as her biggest influences. El is the foremost expert on 1959 sci-fi melodrama Teenagers from Outer Space and industrial film studio Centrin Corporation. Oh, wow. <laughs> Corporation. I'm so sorry. Corporization. Corporization. She is an inter- International Cinematographers Guild, Local 600, director of photography, writes about cinematography for ICG Magazine, and is a member of the International Collective of Female Cinematographers. Damn. Very impressive. Wow.
0: Yeah, I'm like, Oof, <laughs> I don't, I need to leave.
1: I know, right? <laughs>
0: Yeah, thank you so much for joining us today, Elle. I,
1: I know you guys are all really intimidated about how much I know about Teenagers from Outer Space. <laughs> truly, truly. That's my favorite fact in there, honestly. It's probably my favorite fact about myself. My phone case is actually Teenagers from Outer Space phone case, oh and I might God. be the only one. Yeah. That's amazing.
0: You you would probably hate to learn that I have actually never seen that.
1: Well, it is it is um, public domain, which is great for two reasons. One, it means you can watch it anywhere. And two, it means it was a Mr. Science Theater episode. So.
0: <laughs> okay. Okay. I'll cue that up. Um, so this episode has been gosh, when did I first talk with you about talking dead ringers? Like a
1: while ago.
0: Yeah, it was like even my old pod, I think. Gosh that might be like two years ago. <laughs> it
1: was a while, but it's good because we always need to talk more about Dead Ringers.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um I had I had reached out to Elle about covering this film because honestly, uh there's nobody else I would rather have cover this film. Uh you went as uh the, the twins for Halloween, correct?
1: I did. I went as the twins for Halloween this year, although technically I went as Beverly. But, you know, it could be either of
0: them. That's amazing. I love that. That's so cool. You never know. You never know. And it, like, looks very, like, screen accurate almost.
1: (laughs) I'm a jerk in that respect. I really try not to do Halloween costumes from movies unless they can be, like, really accurate. But, you know, as to this film being sort of uh, little known, I was shocked, you know, with the horror crowd that I hang out with. That even though I went as a relatively screen accurate version of this character nobody recognized me maybe one or two people out of like a couple hundred people ah, that i encountered that's, during halloween that's recognized so insane. It.
0: i think i yeah. remember you like dming me going like no one's recognizing this and i'm like what yeah
1: it was weird it was very strange but on the other hand what a better icebreaker to start a weird conversation about david Grunberg.
0: exactly true that's actually a <laughs> hot topic that i'm like never afraid to bring up with anybody (laughs) um so before we dive into dead ringers let's just do quick round robin stuff we've been watching this week uh el you want to kick us off with something interesting you may have seen this week
1: oh my god well the last three films that i saw pretty much encapsulate my personality which are down nabby top gun maverick and the watcher which is phenomenal um yeah cleo Puno. Um, starring Micah Monroe, just really phenomenal um, film that's coming out soon. And it deals with uh, sort of uh, female paranoia, but also the sort of extra layer that women encounter with their day-to-day interactions with men that men don't always get to experience. And they kind of create sort of a gaslighting about whether your, your fear is real or not. And it's just a really interesting exploration about um, the male gaze and the female gaze, and how those things intersect in sometimes not a great way. Oh
0: wow, this this actually sounds super good. Um, that has actually been on my radar for a little bit, but I hadn't talked to anybody that had seen it yet. So
1: yeah, um, I was very lucky in that um, American Cinema Tech uh, did some preview mm-hmm. screenings. Of the film, and uh, it was co presented by Beyond Fest, who's always doing amazing kind of previews of cool stuff that's about to come out. And I uh, threw an odd selection of circumstances ended up doing the q a at the arrow with the leads wow which was uh raucous and memorable
0: hell yeah wow i'll be sure to i'll be sure to catch that when it when it becomes widely available because i do i do love Micah Monroe. she's she's very underrated i think
1: yeah i believe it comes out june
0: 3rd oh this week madison you want to Tell us what you've been up to lately.
1: Yeah. So
2: I was at a convention for the last week, so I didn't really get to see any movies. I was supposed to see Top Gun Maverick with my parents because we are a Top Gun family, um, but the timing just didn't work out. So all I've watched this week are uh, the first two episodes of Kenobi because I was at a Star Wars convention. Um, And then what was at the hotel? And that was South Park, The Office, and the first like 20 minutes of The Dark Knight. So that is what I've watched this week. Right on, Steph. Well,
3: in preparation for Cronenberg month, I thought I should balance it out. Uh, so I watched Paddington 2. Uh,
1: I actually... It's <laughs> my favorite body horror film.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, there's a lot of parallels between Paddington 2 and uh, Dead Ringers, I think. Um, the body horror, you know, its subtle, but it's there. Anyway, it was actually the first time I've ever seen Paddington 2, and it was amazing. It's as amazing as everyone says it is. I, I don't care. I loved it. It made me laugh and it made me cry.
2: We need that one guy to Photoshop Paddington into dead ringers. <laughs> yes.
1: Perfect. Perfect. Yes.
3: Um. Yeah. So I watched Paddington too. And then I also had a vampire double feature night with my friend. Um, so we watched... Only Lovers Left Alive, uh, the film with Tom Hiddleston and Tilda Swinton, which I absolutely love. Um, also, as I was watching it, it reminded me of the other movie that we covered on this pod that I, for some reason, can't remember the name of now, but. Sundown Vampires. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah Sundown, because they make wooden bullets. Oh, my in God. Only Lovers Left Alive. And I was like, oh, they did the wooden bullet thing.
2: And I got really excited. <laughs> That's awesome.
3: <laughs> but uh, yeah, that movie is super good and I highly recommend it. Um, And then after that, it was like 2 a.m. and we decided to watch Twilight and we did a drinking game and I got very drunk. So I I can't really recall exactly what happened.
1: (laughs) I hear they sparkle.
3: They do sparkle indeed. Yes. Body horror all on another level. But yes, that's what I
0: watched. (laughs) Right on, right on. I appreciate you keeping it within theme, uh, even even though, uh, <laughs> even though Paddington doesn't seem like the body horror I'd be into.
2: <laughs> she watched Paddington and Pattinson.
0: It was a pretty Ooh, good one. Have, <gasps> you guys, yeah. have you guys ever seen where they do like they Photoshop Paddington in the lighthouse?
2: That's what I said. Yeah. The episode where they do it uh, one for every movie or like a movie every day. They got to do Dead ringers.
0: next. They'll eventually do it.
1: (laughs) It's going to be his reflection in that little window.
0: (laughs) 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 That'd be great. That's Um, awesome. I didn't watch too much this week. Uh, I did make it to the theater to go see uh, Top Gun Maverick, which um, kind of low-key blew my mind with how good it was from a technical aspect.
1: I have so many thoughts on that film, but I feel like not everyone has seen it yet. So I've been really like not wanting to talk about it and Mm -hmm. accidentally spoil it, but... I thought it was like amazing the way that it walked the tightrope between sort of nostalgia mm-hmm. and um fan service basically like it it just really in in ways that other films that have tried to do that have not been able to capture it really was able to both give fans what they wanted without being a total slave to the original film or a soft remake mm-hmm. of the original film.
0: Yeah, that's that's kind of how I felt about it too. I I was actually a little bit scared to watch it because I have no nostalgia for the original film. I just know that my parents loved it and they wanted to go see it. But I ended up walking out of this movie um really impressed with what they did. Yeah, it's kind of hard not to talk about like certain story elements without like spoiling it i will say though it is very interesting that tom cruise finally made a movie about getting old and it was kind of weird seeing him acknowledge that because uh, you always see like the hype behind mission impossible of like nope he's still got it he's still gonna do like all these crazy stunts
1: yeah i love that they gave him a, a an age-ish appropriate um mm-hmm. romantic lead which was great but I do wish we had gotten some Kelly McGillis because she's amazing.
0: Yeah, it's very weird that like she wasn't involved, Meg Ryan wasn't involved. Um kind of kind of the the two women of the original weren't involved with this one, which is like definitely interesting um or or problematic, however you want to look at it. On the
1: other hand, we did get Val Kilmer. I also would have loved to see Tom Skerritt or Michael Ironside. <laughs>
0: yeah, my mom, my mom, she walked down and she's like, "How did they not bring back Tom Skerritt for this?" Um, but yeah, I don't know. I I guess I read that Tom Cruise's stipulation was that they bring back. I won't really spoil it. I almost did. The, 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 one, the that one that they that brought, they brought back, back was like the Tom Cruise stipulation of like. I won't do this movie unless he's back. And That's uh, good. I will That's say good. though, I do love what they did with that one particular character.
1: Yes. I thought it was a really unique um, way of introducing and uh, contemplating. Yeah, the definitely.
0: And I just walked out thinking that talking overall was was pretty tasteful. It was very good. It was it was a movie that just focused on like being entertaining. It wasn't trying to like talk down to its audience. It wasn't trying to be anything more than it was. And, you know, for a summer blockbuster, that's kind of refreshing in a way. But yeah, uh, definitely, totally. definitely a hard recommend for Madison and Steph. You guys uh, need to get back on that one.
3: Can't wait. Yeah, I actually have never seen Top Gun. Oh, it, I love it. You're
1: missing out on some really good Kenny Loggins, guys. It really And are. volleyball. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I've
3: never been like a Tom Cruise person or an action movie person in general. So I just never watched it, but I should. I know I should. And I've heard really good things about the new one, so I probably will. Oh, it's
0: Tony Scott, too, directing it. Tony Scott's movies are, like, so good.
3: Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. I also just, like, just watched Mission Impossible <gasps> for the first time.
1: Like, I'm behind. Whoa, like,
0: <laughs> the first one, first one?
1: Yeah, and I watched Fallout. Mission Impossible, you mean the genre? Reno gateway drug? <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: That first one has such a different vibe from, like, the rest of the series. So, to go from, like, the first one to Fallout, it's like, whoa. Yeah.
3: Yeah, that was jarring. Probably <laughs>
0: wouldn't have done that.
3: <laughs> yeah, I I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing. I mean, I, I listen. I'm the type of person that watches Paddington too. Okay, I I don't know. I have no taste. Isn't like Paddington too like
0: <laughs> beloved? Yes, everyone loves that movie. I
1: think it's it's like the most highly
3: yeah, rated movie like, ever. <laughs> everybody
0: loves that movie. I haven't seen it, so I can't say. But
3: I feel like weird to be like, oh, I love Paddington. No, no don't feel weird. Yeah, I think <laughs> it's, it's just
0: the general consensus of like this movie's amazing or like this movie is just a warm blanket um speaking of warm blankets uh let's do a quick ad read before we get into our topic for today
2: (laughs) (laughs) that transition
0: folks do you love movies do you spend your days thinking about how much you love to watch them the good ones even the bad ones everyone told you not to like it sounds like super Yaki is the place for you The team at Super Yaki loves movies so much that they've dedicated every waking moment of their life to bring you top quality merchandise to showcase your love for them.
2: From bumper stickers that tell the world about your love for the 1999 classic The Mummy, to stylish hats that celebrate the fine works of Nora Efron. They even have super soft t-shirts based off the internet's favorite collective husband, Oscar Isaac. Super Yaki brings you tangible love letters to the movies and filmmakers that you can wear with pride. Plus, the team at Super Yaki
3: screen prints all their apparel using eco-friendly, 100% water-based inks and ships with compostable poly mailers for an environmentally friendly alternative to online shopping
0: and for our listeners you can enter the code super windsor in all caps to receive 10 percent off your entire order
3: if the spirit moves you find them at SuperYaki.com. Let's, let's watch, watch more, more movies. movies
0: boom okay um steph do not you introduce our movie for this week
3: i would love to um on the topic of warm blankets this movie is not one. The movie that we are talking about today is Dead Ringers, released in 1988, written and directed by David Cronenberg. It stars Jeremy Irons in the dual role of Beverly and Elliot Mantle. So he plays twins in this film. And it also stars sh- wait. Genevieve Boujol <laughs> as Claire Nouveau. 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 <laughs> <laughs> killing it. Killing it. <laughs> as Claire Nouveau. So the film follows Jeremy Irons as these twin gynecologists who take full advantage of the fact that nobody can tell them apart until their relationship begins to deteriorate over a woman. The film currently sits at an 83% on Rotten Tomatoes, where critics say Dead Ringer serves up a double dose of Jeremy Irons in service of a devilishly unsettling concept and commandingly creepy work from director David Cronenberg. The film went on to win 10 Genie Awards and is hailed as one of the greatest canadian films of
0: all time okay so i feel honestly this is one of the more loaded david cronenberg movies so i kind of don't even know where to start with this one um L, um why why did you want to talk about Dead Ringers as your Cronenberg pick. Oh,
1: man. Well, I love Cronenberg, and I like many films from his different eras of filmmaking. And this one sort of intrigues me for two reasons. One, it's sort of uh, an unsolvable puzzle. That is, it has so many layers of commentary that basically boil down to gender and the relationship between the sexes. But there are so many different facets of that that are presented within the story you can just really go down a rabbit hole thinking about all of the different dichotomies he's crafted. But also what's really fascinating about it is that Cronenberg is known for body horror... And this is in his body horror era. But this is also the least body horror of all of his films of that era. It's more of like a psychological horror, kind of sad horror drama, um, which is super ironic because it's literally all about bodies and the joining of bodies in different ways and the creation of bodies through sex and reproduction and fertility. And yet there's really... Only one scene in the movie that is sort of classic Cronenberg body horror.
0: Mm -hmm. Fully agree.
1: Yeah, I think
3: what's so interesting to me, because uh, if you don't know Elle, I'm a Cronenberg newbie, so (laughs) I've only seen two Cronenberg movies now. Well, three. This would be my third. And I'm not a huge body horror fan, so I was going into this like with a little bit of dread. (laughs) I was like expecting something horrifying, and then I got through it, and I was like, oh, That was fine. But, but what I like about it is that the body horror is still there, but It's more like the implication. Like the entire movie is about body horror and they talk about horrifying things. Like when um, Beverly is on the phone with the receptionist and he's like describing like the condition that Claire has. And it's like this very visceral, horrifying description of like her mutation, as he calls it. That's like the body horror of this movie. What I got away from it, aside from like the horrifying dream sequence that I don't ever want to see again,
1: Um. Well, that's what I mean is like this film being so layered in that Cronenberg is playing with the fact that women's health is taboo for some reason within our society. And we've sort of been trained by the establishment to get squicked out about like the nature of people's genitalia and, you know, how the reproductive cycle works and what all the parts are. And we've sort of like societally been taught to be scared of those things and not to talk about them, even though they're completely natural, in the way that a lot of his body horror is like specifically unnatural. But this one specific aspect of our, you know, real live bodies is something that has been totally you know pushed into the the closet you know out of sight out of mind not to be spoken about which i think is sort of fascinating
0: wow that's a you two have great reads on this movie i'm loving so far um because uh i i kind of walk away from it with like a little more basic like reading um that it's almost more about like a addiction i, I don't know why like i really focus on that like uh, beverly like just becoming like addicted to drugs and deteriorating throughout the movie like Not only physically, but mentally as well. To the point that he's having these weird visions about mutant women, quote unquote. And I feel like his visions about the mutant women are his sexual like repression um coming to a head because of it
1: well there's there's like there's so many aspects to it you know for example he once he sort of falls in love with someone who is you know quote-unquote a mutant then he begins to find other quote-unquote normal women Mm -hmm. to be repulsive right and he's sort of trying to fix them to be more like the woman that he loves there's also an aspect of like them as as twins kind of they're both like they're both two halves of a Whole, they're not people that function independently of one another. And the way that the characters are drawn and their personalities support that. Obviously, there's like a lot of references to Siamese twins and being conjoined, and and those aspects that really try to drive this home. You know, I think there's there's a line in there where he's basically uh, where Elliot says like, "You haven't had an experience unless I've had it too, or vice versa." That's really showing that yeah, they're these two halves. But they each sort of embody different traits. And what's interesting to me with the addiction and destabilization aspect of Beverly is that for a lot of the movie, Elliot is like trying to get Beverly to act more like him. And then when he does start to act more like him by, you know, having a relationship with this woman and and doing drugs and being a little bit more out there, it completely like upsets the ship. Like it destabilizes that, you know, symbiotic relationship that they've built together over their weird insular, you know, relationship and life
0: together. Wow. Yeah, definitely. I can I can see all of that. It, it it's almost in a weird way Cronenberg's uh, most human movie with all of that aspect. Yeah.
1: I think so. And I, I think there's like an ugliness to that, like a truthfulness and an ugliness to it. Because I think to me one of the things that's most memorable about the film is that, you know, there are a lot of films that have sort of misogynist characters or deal with the overall theme of misogyny, but this one almost feels like it's pulling back the curtain and showing you like characters that so objectify and dehumanize women and the fact that they are like a that are doing this and they're so cold and they're so clinical and they're often mocking of their patients. It almost gives this like look behind the curtain of like how certain men, you women in a way that's both really engaging, but also really depressing.
0: Mm-hmm. Fully agree. Fully agree. And that's why I think it ends up being one of the more fascinating Cronenberg movies, like out of his entire slate, which is Not an easy feat, I would say. Madison, I'm curious to know what your thoughts are on this film.
2: Oh, yeah. I, I love this movie. I was really excited to cover this one, um, especially after last week where I feel like we had a film with a really interesting topic, but really poor execution. Um, this one was a very interesting topic with very, very good execution. Probably my favorite Cronenberg movie that I've seen. But yeah, I I definitely get what you were saying, Reyna, about like I'm mostly focused on uh, the addiction aspect of it, um, and just kind of how that tears families apart, and um, also the weird, like, incesty y part of it. But what you said, Ella, about um, like him seeing all these other women with like perfectly normal anatomy uh, being seen as wrong because of the person he loves, that's such an amazing read. That is, n- I did not get that from the movie in any time I've seen it. And I'm so glad that you said that because that was just a a read I never would have caught on my own. Yeah. I didn't get that either. And then when you said that, I was like, oh my God, that makes so much sense. (laughs) No, that's fantastic. It totally makes sense. And, um, I think like, it's a really good, uh, I feel like warning of codependency and, just the fact that they felt they had to sacrifice the life of one of the twins in order to create a separation because they were so deeply intertwined and codependent. It was so sad and so interesting and it felt like, I don't know, the whole movie felt like one one of those fables that's just a warning and not just a warning against like drug abuse and promiscuity, but also just being too dependent on your family to where you can't separate yourself and have a life of your own. And I thought that that was very um, interesting and really good. And I'm really glad this film held up because it's been a long time since I've seen it. And I felt Like I like it even more now after this viewing than I did the first time. So yeah, I really enjoyed it and I'm really glad we're talking about it.
0: Definitely. Can, uh, we, can, can we talk about Jeremy Irons' performance in this movie, first and foremost?
3: Yeah. Yes. I want to lead off
0: this conversation. Bro.
3: <laughs> oh, my God. I, I was like, I had to keep reminding myself that this is one actor. Right? It's just like the very subtle changes between each character. Like, they're so subtle. Mm-hmm. But he, he makes them both entirely different people. I, at first, I was like, oh, man, I'm going to have such a hard time telling them apart and like knowing which one is which. And then it was so easy to tell them apart. And I was like, why? Like, I know that's Beverly. I know that's Ellie. And that was so impressive. And just like, as the movie went on, it just got more and more impressive. And through like Bev's entire decline into madness and mm-hmm. like that whole performance of him going through withdrawal and just being this like mad doctor, it was just, it was so impressive. And I i think that really made this movie Incredible. Like it was already
2: really, really good, but Jeremy Irons just slayed. Yeah, his, uh, the subtle differences were already impressive enough, just seeing one be slightly more timid than the other. But once you show, once you see like Beverly's decay almost, um, with his drug addiction versus his brother being perfectly fine, um, it really felt like two different actors. And at that point, it didn't even feel like twins. They felt like they, were completely different entities, and it was amazing. And I mean, they parent trapped us for sure. <laughs> but um, yeah,
1: I think it's kind of fascinating because there are a couple instances in the film where they do use Claire's character as sort of a stand in for the audience or to Mm -hmm. give like meta commentary on what's happening. And she has her line. That's like, sometimes I really like you and sometimes you're an amusing lay. And that's sort of like exactly how the audience is meant to react to them. Like, I think you notice it's, it's not just about the strength of the performance, but it's about like the negative space use almost, In the performances, you know, the fact where one goes high, where one goes low Mm -hmm. and one goes timid while one goes assertive that really like draws you to caring about Beverly. And even though they both have like a similar amount of screen time to really feeling like Beverly is much more of like a protagonist character in the film than Elliot is. Yeah, yeah.
2: No. And I feel like um, that scene um, at the award ceremony is when it's really put on full display because it's a brother at their um, highest point versus a brother at the lowest, and it really feels like there are two people in the room. And I feel like often when an actor plays twins, you can tell, you can just feel that there are there's one person in the room and one person posing as that person. You can tell that they're not interacting with. A twin. And in that scene where he's picking his brother up and um, his brother's intoxicated, I thought, like, I forgot that it was one actor. And it really felt that there were two people in that space. And I loved that. I thought that was fantastic. I really thought it was interesting how for like the first act of the movie
3: it's very clear that like Beverly is this very timid and nice kind for the most part guy aside from this switcheroo thing that they're doing with women yeah Um, but other than that he's like a pretty nice guy and then Ellie is portrayed as this kind of piece of shit asshole and Mm -hmm. so that's sort of like what you're set up with and then by the end it's sort of turned on its head where Beverly's the one that is sort of going mad and like harming women and just losing his mind and you see the tender side of ellie and he's just like really cares about his brother and is really trying to take care of him it was interesting to see like the different layers of both of them and how they're both very different but also kind of similar.
1: Yeah, they end up having sort of, like, a, an opposite arc that happens. And they, there's stuff at the beginning that, like, doesn't seem, like, it's totally connected until you get to the end and you see that they've done this, like, switcheroo. Like, they show Ellie being very insensitive with a lot of the patients like one patient is like wailing and he says something like you know i just can't with the serious ones i don't know how to deal with that yeah um, and it just yeah it creates this perfect book end. yeah and the uh th- i
3: noticed that the wardrobe was very specific so for most of the movie ellie is wearing very cool tones he wears a lot of blues and grays and bev was wearing a lot of like warm browns and creams and then by the end there there's one scene where bev is like a little bit nasty and he's acting like you know he's kind of gone off the deep end
2: and he's wearing blue and like is it the blue robe scene where he's wearing a robe over his suit yeah i noticed that too
3: yeah and i was like is that is that ellie because he always wears blue, and then I was like, "No, that's Bev," and it like totally threw me off. And I was like, "Wow, that's really interesting how they did that." And then yeah. by the end, they're both wearing the same gray blazer with mm-hmm. no shirt on, like when they're doing the surgery. And I was, it was like they there's that scene that just like I was like, "Man, this movie's so good." <laughs> that scene when they they both walk by in the blazer and the boxers, yeah, and they look completely identical. And I was like, "Wow." What a masterpiece.
2: And it's like, I feel like it adds another layer when you think about them as twins, because like twin parents always do that where they assign their child a color and like this daughter is pink and this daughter is purple. And then everything that they purchase for that twin is that color just so they can tell them apart. And when you think of it that way, like it kind of makes sense that they would have a like a specific color palette for each twin, because like that's just something that's always done. Um, so I know that we wanted to connect a lot of our Cronenberg like episodes to um, viewing it through the lens of like an LGBTQ reading. And I know that we kind of discussed that, oh, this film like doesn't really have it, but I feel like I disagree because Yeah,
1: I disagree as well.
2: That they have such a codependency. That people only typically have with their romantic partner and the way that they love each other, it really does cross the line of family and go into um, lifelong partnership, I feel like. Um, and there's also that scene where um, Ellie's like initiating the three way with their friend. Um, and just the fact that he wants to know every sexual detail about Beverly and the fact that they share women. And um, I feel like there's nothing straight about that. Um, and while it may not be like good LGBTQ rep, it's still not straight. Um, I feel like their relationship with each other um, is not by any well- like, way heteronormative at all.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I I would agree with that. But I think I think that's sort of to me, when I watch it, it's like on the surface, it seems like you could read an incestuous and or homoerotic element to it, right? Like, you know, they're both having sex with her as like a proxy, so they can deal with their repressed feelings towards each other. And I think Gronenberg is kind of coming tongue in cheek about that. Because he has a line where he says, uh, where Ellie says to bed, like, just do me. And it's like, mm, that's yeah. kind of leading. But he also, like, he tends to take like a sardonic point of view in a lot of his films. And I actually think that this may be more of like a literal look at twins and what twins are and what like brotherly love is. And like, yeah. is this like a literal interpretation of self-love? Because mm, in a way mm-hmm. they love each other because they are each other and the closer they are to being each other, the more they love each other and at least on a superficial level. And it's sort of as they start to not be the same person, that's when the destabilization happens, but it's like all the, you know, uh, discussion about, you know, living underwater and all the, the blue tones in their kind of fishbowl apartment and their offices and feeling Mm -hmm. trapped. There's like, there's all of this reference to sort of them potentially being like stunted and in the womb a little bit. Yeah. And so I almost feel like, like the surface level is like, yes, there's this potential homoerotic element to it, but beneath the surface there's like, this is about, um, like, narcissism, and, you know, and mirroring personalities, because in a way, like, they, they are both one organism. And to me, that one organism for them within their insular relationship, yeah, it kind of incorporates aspects of both genders. Like, mm-hmm. th- that's what I find really fascinating about this is that you have Ellie being this sort of hyper masculine, like, suave, braggy, you know, wines and dines, womanizes, kind of pushy, predatory guy. Mm -hmm. And then you have Beverly, who, as as you guys have said, he's like, you know, very timid. Uh, But he also like, you know, at the very beginning, he's almost uh, introduced as asexual, like in that conversation with them as kids, where a lot of the the themes and tones are set up. They're talking about, you know, um, if we were fish, then you could have sex without touching the other person. And he's like, Oh, that sounds like a great idea. Yeah. Um, yeah. And as he gets older and as he like, you know, finally has this probably first ever real relationship with Claire, his, traits kind of are more on the feminine side of things. And he's like very upset that she might think he's gay. She, you know, he starts freaking out at home that she's gone on this job and might be cheating with her, with her assistant who turns out to be gay, mm-hmm. which is like a sort of backwards of the traditional like bored housewife kind of paranoia scene that you might normally see. Um, and it's also almost like there is an element of this is maybe going too far, but it's like he, Bev is upset when it's set up that he has to pass as Ellie at certain times, right? So when Ellie goes to, to screw Claire at the beginning and he has to go, um, deal with the Contessa, right? He's like upset about that. He's upset when he has to pass as that type of, Man, That like traditional Mm -hmm. man. And I think there's, there's an interesting element to that. And then not to monopolize all the time. But on top of that, there's like one more thing that I think is totally fascinating, which is Claire and her role in that because like her whole speech about trying to get pregnant you know, she exhibits a lot of what would be labeled normally as masculine traits, right? She says she's promiscuous, she's totally promiscuous, because she's been trying to have a baby, right? And she says she's never even had contraceptive thoughts, which is like a very like taking the male side in a sexual relationship. And then like five minutes later, she's saying she'll never be a woman because she can't have a child. And she's taking hormone injections to make like her body work, you know, in a traditional female way. But she's basically like crying that she'll always be like a, a child, aka sort of like a genderless creature because of her her infertility. And so I think there's like layers in there that definitely get into, you know, what we view as traditional gender roles and whether that crosses into like other elements of identification. There's, there's certainly like a lot to unpack there.
2: Yeah. And I, I do agree with you on what you're saying. I do want to push back a little bit. I feel like we've Breezed past the conversation with Claire where she insinuates that they may be gay. Um, And uh, I believe it's Ellie, but I honestly couldn't tell them apart in this scene. But I believe it's Ellie because. They weren't getting along very well. He reacts very, very um, defensive at the notion that there could be anything um, gay about them. And yet they do initiate a three way type scene later on in the film. So that did feel like to me um, more of a defense out of quote, quote unquote guilt rather than just like, a, oh, no like, blah, blah, blah. I'm not gay. And I know that it was pushed by them having more feminine names, but I think that that scene was intentional. And I think it was highlighting um, the interactions between the twins. While I do agree with you that it does feel like a lot of narcissism, I do think that that like homoerotic undertone is still there and that a scene like that wouldn't be necessary if it wasn't um, intentionally placed there. You know what I mean?
1: No, I totally agree. I just think it's like, he's trying, Cronenberg is playing with all these different elements Mm -hmm. of sex and Mm -hmm. gender within all these relationships. And so it's like another layer to that. But I don't think it's the only layer.
2: I love your read of um, like gender identity with Claire and Beverly because she does take a more masculine role and he does take a more feminine role, especially in her getting him into drugs. I feel like um, in a lot of stories, it's the man that's the bad influence on the woman And in this story, it is flipped on its head. So I really do like that read of their gender roles kind of being swapped or her gender roles being just genderless. I do really, uh, I really like that read because she's like the bad girl who gets him into like more promiscuity and drugs and things like that. Whereas he is the more innocent, protected one in the relationship. So I do like that. But I do have a question. L, what's your thoughts on the cinematography? I know we read your bio earlier and you have a lot of like very, very impressive credits. So I want to know how you feel about like the technical aspects of the film rather than the story and the acting.
1: Well, I, I mean I think the film does a really great job between the photography and the production design of like keeping the characters walled off. And I'm I'm a big fan of split screen photography. It's like such a simple gag but it's so effective. And I think in this, they were using a mix of just static split screenshots and some like early motion control. Mm -hmm. Um, There's like one scene where I think they're like in a closet together and it's panning from Elliot to Bev and then back. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it just, it's, it's like a simple camera move, but it works because it's not flashy. It works because it's like the simple kind of normal walk and talk movement that you would have in any film. Oh, yeah, it's very subtle. Yeah, if they were doing like big scenes with it, then I think it would... Like, feel staging, it would break that really delicate balance of feeling like these are two. People. No, I,
2: I completely agree. I think that all of the effects in the film, from the lack of gratuitous blood um, and everything, made it feel much more real, which made it feel very intense. And I don't think that if this film was more gory and more flashy with the uh, use of cinematography, I think it wouldn't have been as intense because it wouldn't feel real. It would just feel like a horror movie, whereas this felt. And I know that this is based off of a true story, not a true story, but it's inspired by a true story. And that also brings some realism to it. But, um... Yeah, I completely agree that little little tricks like that that are so simple and so common make it feel um, a lot less fake than it would if they were being too flashy with it. I totally agree with that. This
0: was Cronenberg's uh, first collab with his regular DP, right? Uh,
1: I think so. I'd have to look that up, but I think that's correct. Yeah,
0: I believe he did all of Cronenberg's work all the way uh, up until Maps to the Stars.
1: Yeah, and he's an interesting um, DP because he also did Rocky Horror Mm -hmm. and Empire Strikes Back. So Mm -hmm. he was, like, pretty established by the time they were working
0: together. Yeah, definitely. I, I love, like, the color palette he uses throughout this film. Just very muted and whatnot. Like, still, like traditionally bold colors but kind of lit up in a very muted way
1: oh i mean and, and because you're right because it's so muted when they get into that you know trademark denise Cronenberg costume design mm-hmm. with that red it just pops so strongly and gives it such like a distinctive visual flair And the reality is that good cinematography really is only like, you know, a third about the cinematography. It's equal parts, the cinematography, the costume Mm -hmm. and the production design, you know, and you just have to have all those working together um, to make something that's really special.
2: Yeah. um, I felt that the costume design in that scene made it feel so much like a dream sequence that I didn't know if it was real or not until he was in trouble. Um, And I love that. I love the way that they did that. It made it feel a lot more culty or horror-ish. And a scene where someone's taking horrible instruments and trying to... uh, Scramble up a woman's organs or body parts is horrifying. So, um, yeah, I thought that that was a really bold and good
0: choice on their part. I love the design of those tools. Like, even though they're supposed to be horrifying, oh my god! Like, I want them for for my oh, shelf. they such an art piece.
2: <laughs> I want earrings out of them.
1: <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah. I love that they were like eventually became an art piece because mm-hmm, they looked mm-hmm. so much like not. Actual tools Like they were meant To be an art piece I thought that was Really interesting Yeah just going back To what you are saying About the red And how that moment Just popped I felt like Like you were saying El The whole movie Is so real And it's so grounded That when we get To that moment it, It almost felt Like theatrical Very like Grand Like grandiose And so different From the tone Of the rest of the film And it like Brought me out of it But like in a good way Where it just like I was like Oh Okay This is So different from everything we've seen so far. And it it made that scene feel so big and important. And I just, I loved, I loved that. It was so cool.
2: I also, I think that a, a level that adds to it that I mentioned before is the first time I saw this film, I did not know the real like story of the twins that this is based off of. And after reading about them, it made this so much sadder. I don't know if any of you, I'm sure you guys did like read their story Um, But I want to read the whole book about it now. It's so, so devastating that this really happened. And obviously they took a shit ton of artistic license with it. I think that knowing where the source material comes from is so sad. And like seeing the photos of them and they're real people. And it's like so horrible when you think about everything that happens. I mean, they didn't like dis- disembowel each other. They, uh, they just died of drug overdose, but it's still very sad. Yeah. I, I think it's interesting
3: how, I mean, yeah, first of all, this is so sad. And even before I knew about that, because I, I read about that after I finished the movie, mm-hmm. I still felt like, this is such a sad story. And it's it's so interesting because by the end, you shouldn't like either of them. You shouldn't be rooting for them. Like, they're very clearly not the most... Ethical humans.
0: I think you're supposed to be empathetic towards them. No, in a way.
2: No, I know. I, but I was. That's what I'm saying. I think Steph is saying she's not rooting for them, but you do feel empathy. They're addicts at the end of the day, and it is like, I I think I get what you're saying. Steph is like you're not supposed to want to be on their side, but you are on their side because they're just dealing with mental illness and addiction and depression and horrible codependency, and you can't help but want. For them to have a happy ending Even though they're doing horrible things I totally get what you're saying Yeah I I think it just speaks to like
3: The power of the the storytelling That I shouldn't be rooting for them But I really was empathizing with them And I was so sad Well
0: and that's why And that's why I said earlier, I think, like, in many ways, that it's Cronenberg's probably most human film.
2: Mm -hmm, mm
0: -hmm.
1: I completely agree with that.
0: I think in many ways, it's just about human nature as a whole.
1: Yeah, that's why I think there's so many different sort of discussions about different things happening throughout the film, which just makes it, you know, an unsolvable Rubik's Cube of Yeah,
0: actually, 100%. Um, Yeah. And who said Cronenberg was just, like, body parts and gore? Like, come on, (laughs) just uh, throw this one on, please.
2: So, why do you guys feel like this movie is underseen or underappreciated? Why why isn't it talked about more besides in Canada where it won a bunch of awards?
1: Oh, for me that's like totally obvious and it's stupid and it like shows how we have not progressed enough as a society and it's because it's about gynecologists. And I think that's something that Cronenberg himself Said was a problem in even getting the movie made. Mm-hmm. Is that, you know, it's like it's underground not because of its content, which is actually in some ways like sweet and interesting. But because the subject matter is taboo, and the the film is totally aware that it's taboo, right? Like when she's having dinner with at the dinner table. I
2: was just about to say that, yeah. And the guy is so uncomfortable. Sorry, continue. I was just, I completely agree. Right,
1: right, (laughs) right. Like she brings up uterus at the dinner table, and her coworkers like, whoa. and then ellie matches her and asks about her period and the other guy's like i'm out of here yeah and that's the way that again that's the way that like we're sort of societally trained to talk or not talk about these subjects and i think that you know when i talk to people about this movie you know when i'm dressed up in that red people (laughs) outfit Uh uh-huh talking to people about david cronenberg and they're like what it's about i'm like twin gynecologists they're like Oh yeah, you know, like almost the concept itself is like horrific. It's, it's why uh,
0: Robert De Niro actually said no to this movie.
1: Yeah, I saw something with Cronenberg, Cronenberg a while ago that said um, it's interesting. He said there was like something macho about acting that that was a turnoff to a lot of actors. To like, they didn't even want to act. As a gynecologist, which I thought was kind of fascinating.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that totally makes sense. When Even when I was watching, like when I first started this movie, and this is the first time I've seen it, and there's that opening sequence, like the credit sequence, where it's just like the red background and the Howard Shore amazing, oh, yeah. beautiful score. Yeah, and oh, there's just all these like weird images of gynecological instruments and it was just like the tools and like nothing was happening, but I was already feeling like squeamish. Cause I was like, oh, I hate going to the gynecologist. Like, exactly. It's really uncomfortable yep. and I don't like talking about it. And it's just like, bleh. I think that would not that that was like a turnoff for the movie. Like, I think that I love that they talk mm-hmm. about this and mm-hmm. that dinner table scene I thought was so refreshing Like to hear just a normal conversation about like, hey, what's what's going on in my vagina (laughs) and they were just like very comfortable talking about it and I was like wow this is really cool especially for a film that came out in the 80s Mm -hmm. Um, but I I get why that would turn people off and then
1: you just like you know the gynecology on one hand and then you have all of the other commentary that we've discussed in these Mm -hmm. characters Mm -hmm. you know it's like you're saying in the opening titles it's like 50% gynecological tools or instruments and then it's like a bunch of like anatomical venuses splayed open to see the baby inside yeah and the male lead in this movie ends up dying at the end himself splayed out as like an anatomical Mm -hmm. venus Mm -hmm. like as if he had just had like a c-section right so it's like you know that's a very sort of vulnerable role to be willing to jump onto the screen and in, in the middle of the AIDS crisis, in the middle yeah. of, you yeah. know, queen, queen music videos are banned because the band's in drag kind of environment, you know?
2: I completely agree. And I just feel like it's really incredible to see that this is 18 years after the last film we covered, which is the first um, Crimes of the Future. And that movie just was not. Enjoyable for me. And 18 years later, um, this film comes out and it just seems so like I don't wanna, I don't know if progressive is the right word, but it feels so ahead of its time and heavy, but in a good way. And it's just amazing. Also, speaking about the opening credits, the first thing that pops in my head is this is a joke, but Like, how long until Ryan Murphy steals that for American Horror Story? Um, (laughs) That exact (laughs) opening credits. Oh,
0: oh, please do Um, not jinx it.
2: I know, I'm so sorry.
0: (laughs) So, uh, Madison, I understand you also have some interesting tidbits about this movie for us, right?
2: I was just about to ask if you wanted some fun facts yes Um, so during filming Jeremy Irons kept track of whether he was playing Elliot or Beverly by always um, playing one with his weight on the balls of his feet or um, with his weight on his heels which I think is so interesting and also it would affect like your posture and I feel like both of those twins had such a different energy to how they stood and acted that it totally makes sense that he would stand differently um, for like how they present themselves. So I love that. Um, The fact that I already touched on, I'm so sorry I spoiled it, but the movie is based on two real life twins, Stuart and Cyril Marcus. Uh, The two were found dead in their apartment on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Their deaths were due to withdrawal from uh, arbitrate. I can't say that. I am so sorry. Um, Addiction. And the story is told in the novel Twins by Barry Wood and Jack Geisland. Um, It was published in 1977. So 11 years before this film came out.
0: I got a little bit more context to that. So I guess Cronenberg wanted to call this movie Twins, but Ivan Reitman, who used to be Cronenberg's producer, reached out to him and went like, "Hey, can I buy that title from you?" And he used it for the schwarzenegger DeVito movie.
2: Perfect <laughs> ah, Twins. I know. I know. I saw that earlier and I was dying. Um, I also read the whole Wikipedia article for the Twins. Wow, that sounded so stupid. I like a seventh grader. I read the whole Wikipedia article. No. I I was reading articles about the twins and it was uh, very (laughs) sad, but, um, yeah, so that was 11 be- years before the film came out. And the film is set to be remade by Amazon as a television series starring my wife, Rachel Wise, Ooh. as the
0: Mantle Twins, um, which is so awesome. I cannot wait to see that. Okay, so yeah, that one's that one's going to be a loaded like remake, I think, especially from the perspective of women.
2: Yeah, I think it's odd because female gynecologists aren't something people squirm at as much as male gynecologists, but I'm excited to see
0: what it's like anyway. Do you have any thoughts on that remake. El?
1: Oh, man. I mean, I, I think that there's definitely going to be interesting commentary. If you portray the mantle twins as sort of cold and divorced and dehumanizing mm-hmm. towards the patients as these are, because that's a different commentary, right? That's like a self-hatred commentary rather than an alienation or like unwillingness to understand your counterpart kind of situation from what i could
0: gather and there's not much info about this amazon series and i did like a lot of digging today from what i understand the basic premise is about how they want to like do different um Fertilization techniques. So mm. I have no idea if they're going to like try to go grow babies in different ways, or if there's if it's just going to be like a totally different like thing than what we're expecting.
1: Yeah, it could just be you know taking the title and the concept and trying something totally different, like Crimes of the which <laughs> I would almost prefer. Yeah, I
0: I think I would I think I would prefer it because like I always feel like the the gender swapping like remakes is like kind of lazy. I'm like if you do that, I want like something totally new make it a story worth telling, right? I agree. Well,
1: that's, yeah, that's why I feel like in a weird way, you know, obviously, even though it's based on a true story, I feel like there's a lot of Mm Cronenberg personally in this film Mm -hmm. and not necessarily like him saying, I'm a misogynist, but like, I want to explore these type of feelings that are real feelings that you have. I think it's really hard to just take something like that and gender swap it without the author equally bringing All of their own thoughts and feelings into it. And I think for a TV series, that's a lot harder to pull off unless you're David Lynch.
2: Yeah, love that take.
0: I'm just uh, I'm just gonna assume this remake is gonna be like ten hours compared to an hour and forty. But
2: it's Rachel Wise, so it'll feel like an hour forty anyway. And we'll be thankful for every minute. I'll be thankful for every minute, even if it's the worst thing I've ever seen. I'm gonna psst, I'm gonna love it so much. Two <laughs> <laughs> Rachel Wises. I'd Hell like to yes. think that like yes.
0: she knows how to pick her projects. So for all we know, the script is actually good.
2: Yeah, and again, even if it's just the title and it's like weird twin scientists. The title fucking bangs, so that's good enough for me.
3: (laughs) Yeah, honestly, I'm glad they didn't go with the title twins because Dead Ringers is like The perfect title. It's It's and
1: they're dead. They died. It's perfect. (laughs) It's perfect. I was gonna say they should do it as a weird sequel where it's triplets and she's the the, she's the. They did figure out how to get Claire pregnant in
0: each of the (gasps) compartments. Like it's a legacy sequel. Three
1: Rachel Weisses? Yes, I love Star Wars. Like it's a legacy (laughs) sequel where they're all Jeremy Irons' kids. It's. I love it. What
0: if that? What if that ends up being true? What
1: if they're both. Twins, babies. <laughs> then I, someone yeah, should give real. me a check.
2: <laughs> I think that Ellie and Bev both got her pregnant, and they're both they're in two of her three wombs. Quintuplets is my fan oh. theory. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, do you Fantastic. guys have any closing thoughts on Dead Ringers?
2: If you haven't seen it, go see
3: it, whoever's yeah, listening. That's a statement I can get behind. I'm very glad I saw it. I I had one thought. This movie reminded me very loosely, not a lot, but it reminded me of another movie that we covered on the pod, uh, Kajillionaire, mm. and stay with me here. Because <laughs> um, they're very, very, very different movies. Mm-hmm. But they both have this very similar idea of someone who is very dependent on their family and is completely dependent on them their whole life and thinks is totally normal until they fall in love. And then they're suddenly taken out of this and they're like, oh, wait, what have I been doing my whole life? I shouldn't be this dependent on my family. I should be my own person. And then they have an identity crisis and completely spiral. And clearly they both end in very different ways, but incredibly good take incredibly good take. You you
0: were, you were, you were dangerously close to losing me right there.
3: (laughs) (laughs) No, but yeah, I I don't know. I mean, again, they're very different, but that just that one idea is so similar. And I thought it was really interesting to see it in such different ways Mm -hmm. because the, the the concept is very similar, but they both go in completely different directions. No, you slayed with
2: that one. I'll be honest; that <laughs> I totally am tracking with you. And as um, as someone with like familial codependency, both of those movies definitely hit close to home. So, Would
0: you say uh, that she slayed like Beverly slayed Elliot?
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's <Hey>. so good. <laughs> Wait, can we just address
0: the
3: scene where they eat cake?
1: That was so me coded,
2: honestly. <laughs> <laughs> I've eaten cake like that
3: before.
1: I feel like they just have like regressed back into the womb at that point, right? Cuz he's like happy birthday mm-hmm. but it's not actually their birthday mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. it's not yeah. their birthday, it's like Beverly's birthday at trying to be a new separate person which That's does so not work and sad. That is so yeah. sad.
2: And like the, the idea of like separating the twins or like the Siamese twins, I don't know. It made me very sad. And like it, I know that it's just a movie, but I don't know, me- people's mental health can really, uh, cause them to think in such absolutes like that. Only a Sith deals in absolutes. I'm sorry. I was at hey. a Star Wars convention hey. all week. Um, but, <laughs> but, um, uh, I don't know, it just felt really real to me and like mental health and like drug abuse and things like that can cause you to think in such like drastic ways. I don't know. I've seen the movie before, but it really hit different when I was riding Bart today with my phone out while the lady next to me watched the weird tied up sex scene over my shoulder. (laughs) And I felt very emotional. And I just I really love this movie. I'm so glad I like I feel like you brought it back into my life and I'm going to show it to a bunch of people now. So I'm really happy
0: about that.
1: I watched this with my mom. That was an interesting experience.
0: I'm not that brave. Good thing we weren't covering Crash. (gasps) (laughs) Yeah. um, Elle, what do you got working on? Or do you have anything you want to plug? Where can people find you on socials?
1: If you want to follow like weird genre film ranting about strange things like Dead Ringers, um, my Twitter is... At El Schneider. And then my cinematography work, which I try to keep work oriented, is Instagram. And that is at Attention Soldier, which is my production company. And what do I have going on? Uh, the last feature I shot, currently playing in theaters in 55 cities, which is exciting. It's called 18 and a half. It's a Watergate conspiracy comedy, which is an interesting um, mash of genres and i working on some
0: fun horror stuff to do later in the year. Wonderful. Wonderful. Be sure to check that out. Uh, Steph, where can people find you? Yeah,
3: you can find me at Steph Koza on pretty much everything and Steph Coza versus the Movies on YouTube. I haven't posted a video in a while, but I should have something coming out soon. Um, but, you know, your girl's been chronically depressed, so I will hopefully be posting more content soon. But that's where you can find me.
0: Madison.
2: Hi, there's someone yelling in my house right now, so I'm so sorry if that uh, bugs up the audio. Um you can find me at on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, Letterboxd, everywhere, literally everywhere. Twitch, I stream um, at Maddie underscore Amidala. Um, I have another podcast where I focus on the women of the Star Wars fandom and the women that create Star Wars. That is at the Night Sisters Pod, or sorry, at Night Sisters Pod on Twitter and Instagram. And it's the Night Sisters Podcast on anywhere you listen to podcasts. And that's really the only thing I do other than this podcast. And I love it. So please check it out if you're into women, or sorry, um, not into women but like (laughs) supporting (laughs) women um or or star wars yeah or fandom things that's where i'm at
1: (laughs) by the way you just inspired me to start like a prayer circle to get jeremy irons into star wars as a a sith because how is that how has that not happened yet i like you
2: don't even understand how much that would make my whole life better.
1: <laughs> yeah, is there a manager I can
2: write to? Because it's because DC, DC got their grips
0: into him first.
2: I know him as a Sith, though, or an Inquisitor, which is basically just a, a, another Sith. I would, I would go ape shit for it you are so or smart hear me out.
0: what <laughs> if they got him to play thrawn <laughs> oh,
2: keep, i'm gonna shit myself <laughs> <laughs> reyna reyna i just adore you so much and um you read my mind and thank you Yes, art collector, evil man, Thrawn. He'd be yep. so good in blue, I feel yep. like. You're so right. I, I think so. <laughs> yeah.
1: That was well, so good. Now that I
0: did that, so that's that's my good deed for the week. <laughs> um, you can find me at JFC Doomblade. You can find my work being published pretty regularly at Fangoria. And i probably got a couple new bylines coming up. You can find the pod at Windsor Film Club. You We are available on Apple and Spotify Podcasts. Please be sure to subscribe and give us a rating. Five stars helps. I know last time I said just give us a rating and somebody gave us two stars. <laughs> so I'm like, I'm gonna make myself Ooh. clear this time. Rude. Yeah, really.
2: They gave us a two-star review after one episode, so it feels personal.
0: <laughs> it was for sure, personal.
2: Well, you you you
1: are interested in women in Ooh, Star
0: Wars, so. Madison well, it that's, is you. Yeah. No, I'm kidding. It
2: was probably me. I fight. <laughs> I fight men on the internet pretty regularly, so it's probably my bad guy.
0: <laughs> I love it. Also, this week, um, I'm going to see Crimes of the Future, so I'll probably have some quick thoughts on that.
2: Yes.
3: <laughs>
0: but uh, how about you take us away here, Steph? Um, yep, that's all. Bye. Bye.